The following audio is from The Springs Church. More information about The Springs Church is available at thesprings.cc. Well, good morning, Springs Church. If you've ever wondered what it's like to live in Antarctica and on the San Andreas Fault in California all at the same time, welcome to Oklahoma. Anybody have any pictures fall off their walls? Sorry about that. We're so glad that you're here. We're so glad that you braved the cold. If you haven't looked outside, it is snowing now. So if you fear uh, getting home in the snow, this is your good excuse to step on out. I won't be offended. If you don't want to listen to the sermon, you could just use that as an excuse and you could just top on out. I won't be offended, but next week I might be. So this is your chance. Here at the Springs, we're a church that's being transformed to the image of Christ so that anyone can find their way to God. And we do that in three ways. We gather in the name of the Father, we grow into the image of the Son, and we go by the power of the Holy Spirit. And this is a year of grow for us. And so Brett and I wanted to begin, we had Identity Sunday last week, and we want to begin a series beginning today next week and the following week, about growing into our identity in Christ. And today, we want to talk about growing into our identity in terms of purpose. The anxiety of our age is meaninglessness. Shakespeare wrote in Macbeth in 1605, Macbeth, the character, characterized life this way. As a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. The anxiety of our day is that perhaps life is meaningless. The anxiety of our day is that maybe not just collectively as our life is meaningless because we all look on social media and we see how everyone's life is so full and of purpose, but we fear our life may be meaningless. And it's not just me saying this. Social commentators have talked about this for a while, that this is the anxiety of our time. And they actually look back to Macbeth as one of the first expressions. Although people have been concerned with the meaning of life on some level, we have an acute way of thinking about it in our day about purpose. And the question that cultural commentators have recognized is this. Our question is, it's about what's the point? What's the aim? What's the objective? What's the purpose? Of life. Now, philosophers have been talking about this for a long time. You can go back to Greek philosophers, they've talked about it. But in terms of the general public, most of human history has not asked this question. Think about a medieval farmer that's born into a certain family and this is the way it is, and he's just trying to get by. He didn't have the luxury to ask, 
What's the purpose of my life? For most of human history, people found their place, and this was their place, and this was their purpose. They didn't ask that question, as hard as that may seem to us. In the classical period, the first kind of 400 years after Jesus, this wasn't their anxiety, meaning, and purpose. It wasn't. The primary anxiety as Christianity began to flow out of, from Jewish circles into the Greco-Roman world, the primary questions that Greeks were concerned with was the question of fate and death. You could watch The Gladiator, the movie The Gladiator, and get a sense of that. We're just dust and shadows. What do we do about, we're just fated, and death has us all. And then when you get into medieval Europe, their question wasn't about meaning and purpose, but their, their question, largely shaped by the church, was around guilt and condemnation. What's going to happen to me after I die? And we can relate to that question. That question still lives on in, in our Christian faith today, probably more than the question of fate and death does. But for us, even though the question of meaning has been around, the question of purpose has been around for a long time, it's very acute with us. And that's because of very specific reasons and the ways that we have been cultivated as a people. Whether for good or for bad, that's not the question today. The reality is, while it might not be an acute question for you, in some ways, it's a acute question for all of us living in modern society. And part of that, we've been shaped by historical events and by this, this uh, period in history called modernity. And one of the things that modernity says, it comes out of kind of medieval culture and wants to leave all the past behind. One of its primary values that it wants to, to say, here, hey, how are we going to, how are we going to leave the past and find meaning in life is this idea about progress. Progress. So if we can progress, and by the way, in the past 400 years, the amount of progress, progress in what we know, technological progress, medical progress, social progress, personal progress. And the idea behind this progress was that many believed, and it was widely accepted, that as, we were as the world was progressing, as things were getting better in life, right? economically, socially, medicine, technology, I mean, you name it, it's getting better. the firm belief was that this progress was going to lead us to utopia. And it sounds funny that I say this now, and you're probably like, really? No, go back and read. They talked about utopia. They talked about one day, no more wars, no more poverty. That utopia was possible. In fact, as this progress was moving along, you get up into the early 20th century 
And of course, there's wars and violence and there's things going on, but early 20th century, we have what we call World War I. And another name for World War I that people talked about was that this was the war to end what? All wars. Do you hear the progress? And then there was World War II. And at the end of World War II, it ended, whether good or bad, it's not my point, it ended with the dropping of nuclear weapons on Hiroshima, Nagasaki. And it left several to question, is this what progress looks like? More efficient ways to kill each other? And some of you grew up in a time where you had not tornado drills, but you had other drills where you had to hide under your desk as if that was going to save you in case of nuclear exchange. Human illusions of utopia went away in the 20th century. It really did. After World War II, in fact, it was beginning to go away before that. And now we know because, like, we don't have movies anymore about utopia. A lot of our movies are dystopian. Am I right? It's true. Like, the illusion of utopia went away. Raise your hand if you believe. I'm not talking about... I'm not talking about when Christ comes back and heaven and stuff like that. I'm talking about, do you believe that humans can achieve utopia? Raise your hand. Now, let me ask you a different question. Do you believe in progress still? Raise your hand. You better all raise your hand. It's hard to imagine a world without progress. We want the economy to progress. We want technology to progress, even though we complain about it. We want medicine to progress. We personally want to progress. We want to grow. It's hard to imagine life without progress. But progress towards what? And this is our cultural condition. That when the whole equation is set up that progress is going to get us to utopia... The means, progress, is going to get us to utopia, but then when you take away the end, utopia, and you're left with progress, you're left going, what? Now, you may not acutely feel that way, but that's the cultural moment that we're in, and it leaves us with the question that's underlying life from, I see it in college students, to people in their middle ages, to people at the end of their life questioning, on some level, maybe not all of their life, but part of them is going, what's, the, what's my purpose? What's my purpose? And if you don't believe me, believe this. In 2002, there was a book written by Rick Warren. What was it? The Purpose Driven Life. 
and he hit a nerve. So much so that over 50 million copies have been sold. It was on the New York Times bestseller list for 90 weeks. And many people talk about it's one of the best-selling, the most sold nonfiction books in all of human history. It's been 50 million copies have been sold in 85 different languages. He struck a nerve. Because that's the question of our day. It's a question about meaning. It's a question about purpose. And I think the gospel has something to say about purpose. We could question, you could say, Ben, that's not the right question to ask. It may not be the right question to ask. But I'm sorry, that's the question that's being asked. And we can't put our head in the sand and ignore that question. It's a question that smacks you and I in the face. It smacks our neighbors in the face. It smacks our children in the face. It smacks us right in the face. And the point is not to say, is it the right question or not? Here's the point. I think the gospel is big enough to address all of these types of questions. Amen? Because when the Greeks had a question about fate and death, you know what, you know what the early Christian says? The gospel has something to say about that. The resurrection has something to say about fate and death. And when medieval Christians were concerned about guilt and condemnation, they could have said, that's the wrong question. But Christians didn't say that. They said, hey, the gospel actually has something to say about guilt and condemnation. The cross of Jesus Christ has something to say about that. So when the question is posed to us about meaninglessness and despair, about purpose and meaning, we could say, yes, the gospel has something to say about that. That salvation is not just salvation from fate and death. It is salvation from fate and death. Salvation is not just, we're not just saved from our guilt and our condemnation. We are saved from that. Salvation is your being saved from meaninglessness. In other words, you're not just saved from something. We talk about this. Christianity does a really good job of talking about being saved from sin or from death or from ourselves. But I think Christianity, Christianity, not all of Christianity, I think contemporary Christianity has missed a lot, the other half of salvation. Because you're not just saved from, you are saved for. Do you hear that? You're not just saved from something. You are saved for something. And that's where the gospel answers the question about purpose and meaning. You are saved for God's purpose. Our text today is 1 Peter chapter 2, 9 through 10. It says this, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. It begins by saying, but you 
are a chosen people. Much of our identity in Western culture comes out of what we do. We talked about this before. We're not a being culture. In cultural anthropology, they talk about being cultures and doing cultures. We're a doing culture, largely doing culture. In other words, uh, this is especially true for guys, but it's true for women as well. It's true for us in general. When you introduce yourself to someone, what's the very first question you ask? What do you do? In Uganda, they would never ask that question. They're a being culture. They ask, where are you from? Because that tells you what people you're a part of, right? The being. But the very first question is, what do you do? Hi, John. I'm Ben. What do you do, John? Well, I'm a teacher. I'm an engineer. I'm a lawyer. I work in business. I'm a server at a restaurant. I'm a student. I play soccer. I play football. I, I act. I play an instrument. Do you see how much of our identity, we know this is true, how much of our identity is wrapped up in what we do? But let me tell you this. What you do does not determine who you are. Now, that's true culturally for us. And there's some good things about that. There's some good things about your identity coming from what you do. You do a lot of good things. A lot of good work. But in the kingdom of God, your identity does not come from what you do. Rather, what you do comes out of who you are. Who you are is not what you do. What you do, uh, who you are comes, determines what you do. Or in other words, whose you are determines what you do. Whose you are. God says you are a chosen people. That's who you are. And so it's not that you first loved God, that you did that. It's that God first loved you and that he chose you. He chose you and I. And so because we are his and our identity is found in him, that means everything for what we do. It's not what you do in order to be. It is that God chose you that God first loved you from the creation of the world, that God wants you, that you are, we sang it this morning, I am a what? Child of God. Yes, I am. And that gives you purpose. So, for example, if I'm a teacher, right, what I do in teaching determines who I am. But another way to think about this is in relational terms. I'm also a brother. I'm also a son. That's not anything that I do to become a son. But being a brother means I do certain things. Does that make sense? Being a son means that I have certain responsibilities and I do certain things. That identity gives me purpose. That identity actually bears on what I do in life, not what I do 
There's nothing I did to become a brother. There's nothing I did to become a son. My identity says, huh, what does it mean to be a son? There's certain expectations. There's certain things I do. What does it mean to be a brother? There's certain things that I do. A brother. And so your identity as God's people determines what you do. Your identity as God's person, as a child of God, determines what you do. In other words, because you are a child of God, your life inherently has purpose and meaning. And you didn't do anything to create that. You have purpose in Jesus Christ. And he says this. He defines it this way. Peter says that you are a holy nation. You're a holy people. Now, usually when we think about holy, we think uh, in terms of moral character, like God is holy, he's, 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 he's perfect in his moral character, and holiness has to do on, on, on certain level with character and morality and ethics and things like that. But the word holy, what it primarily means is to be set apart. Now, that has to do with character, but that's not the only thing. In other words, you can think about holy or being a holy nation as being set apart for a particular purpose. In fact, it says this, and, and it says this not only in 1 Peter, but it says this where we get this text, where Peter's quoting from Exodus 19, verse 6. He says, did you see what I did when I brought you out of Egypt? Now, if you obey all my commandments, I'm going to make you my treasured possession, a holy nation kingdom of priests that he calls you and I his treasured possession now usually we have treasured possessions for a purpose for most of us in this room and for the younger people especially that are sitting here you don't want to admit it but this is a treasured possession am I right kind of like, ugh, ugh, I hate to say it it's a treasured possession now, of course, we can get a new one. It may not be this one, but this, and it's because it has a purpose. Usually, treasure possessions, they, they remind us of something. Maybe it's, a, it's something that our treasure possession because it was our mother's or our grandfather's. Maybe it doesn't have like a, a functional purpose, but like a sentimental purpose in our lives. Treasure possessions have purposes. You are God's treasured possession. You have a purpose. Right? It's like if you're a part of a team, you have a role to play on a team, you have a purpose. If you're chosen to be on the team, you have a role to play. And to be a part of that team, you have to play that role. If you get a part in a play and you have a character, you have a part, you have a role to play. You have to follow that script. If you sing, altos have a purpose and bass have a different purpose and they sing different notes in different parts, and the whole thing comes together. Part of that purpose to be a holy people is a very relational purpose. You are set apart to be in relationship to God. 
And part of that relationship means faithfulness and obedience. Not for the sake of just being faithful, for the sake of being faithful, or obedient for the sake of being obedient. But it's because God chose you and loves you, and he's faithful to you. And while your first priority is faithfulness and obedience to God, it's become clear to me, reading, especially in the Old Testament, all up through Jesus, that I used to think, yeah, I'm going to be faithful to God and then treat others well. And for me, those lines have become blurred. Because Jesus says, well, why are you coming to, why are you bringing your gift to the altar when you have something against your brother? The prophets yell out all the time, Hey, you're bringing me all these sacrifices and gifts, but you're neglecting how you're treating people. And Jesus says at the judgment, he says, hey, welcome. For when I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. When I was thirsty, we said, when did we give you something to eat? When you did it for these, you did it for me. See, the lines are blurred. The faithfulness is not just about obedience for the sake of obedience. It's about this missional purpose in the world. It's actually about to show the world a different way, the way God intends the world to be. In fact, what I've talked about, the most real thing out there, the way the world will be one day, that everyone will experience. So this is what it looks like, at least on some level, to be holy. One, what John talked about in the Sermon on the Mount, and the hard sayings in the Sermon on the Mount. They're, not, they're hard only because it's such a different way of imagining the world. It's difficult to imagine loving your enemy. It's very, very difficult. But one of the ways to be holy that you're set apart, you're set apart in this way. You're set apart to love. You're set apart to have joy. You're set apart for the purposes of peace. You're set apart for the purposes of expressing patience in the world or long-suffering. You're set apart to be kind, to show the goodness of God. You're set apart to be a faithful person in your relationships. You're set apart to have self-control. That's what a life looks like that's empowered by the Spirit. And the Spirit gives it purpose. We're also called a royal priesthood. And we don't usually, we don't have priests. I mean, priests are around today, but priests have a certain role. Priests have purpose. Rick Warren says this in his book, The Purpose Driven Life. He says, this is what God created us for. He created us for worship. He created us for fellowship. He created us for discipleship. He created us for service. And he created us for mission. And one of the things, the roles of priests, what they do. Priests, that God has chosen you and I to be a priesthood. The purpose is that you are to represent God to people. This is why you're set apart to be holy. To live a life full of the fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Because you're showing God to the world through those fruits. 
But you're not just showing God to the world through those, those fruits. You're also, as a priest, the priest brings the community, brings their people before God. They're kind of a go-between. They represent God to the people, and they represent people to God. So in our worship, when we worship, we're representing God to the world. When we fellowship, it shows the kind of communion that God has. When you follow God, it shows the life that God leads. When you serve, it shows the service. When you're on mission, it shows God's purposes in the world. And in the same way, when we invite people in to our worship, when we invite people into our fellowship, whether they're Christian or not, we invite people to come and walk alongside with us as we're following Jesus. That, like Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ. That people can actually follow Jesus by coming, participating in your life, and they don't even know it. Just these small steps towards Christ. You can invite them on the mission of God as well. You know, one of the things that I, that I love that I kind of took up from my good friend Dudley Chansey. Now, see, we take students on mission trips all the time. You know, there's always the question about, sometimes people ask the question about their background and could they go on a mission trip and what if they weren't a Christian and they would ask those questions. But I learned from my good friend Dudley, he would go to, still goes to Honduras all the time, anybody could come. Anyone. He would take anybody on these trips. Even an atheist. He's like, yeah, come on, let's go. I wonder, how, that, how did that work? I go, he said, Ben, they can do God's work. They don't have to believe. And sure enough, I went with Dudley. And there are people, and I watched over the years, how many people just joined in Dudley's life and joined in all these mission projects. And it didn't always happen, but he invited them to come and build homes and serve and work and worship. And you know how many of them became Christians through that experience? And he didn't do one Bible study with them during those times. He just said, come on, let's go. What would it look like if your life just invited people in? You don't have to be an extrovert to do this. You don't have to invite everyone in. But you just say, hey, come on, let's go. Come with me. Let's go do this. Come on, come to welcome table. Come worship with us. Come serve with us. Come just be a part of our lives. Share a meal. How many chances do you have to do that? I'm sure a lot. And if this idea about being the go-between God and people and people and God sounds familiar, it's because it is. This is the role that Jesus takes. Is the high priest. And yes, while we are not Jesus and can't do the same things, you're a follower of Jesus and your identity is in Jesus, so guess what your purpose is? Your purpose is the same as Jesus. To represent God to the world and to represent humanity back to God. All at the same time. That's your purpose. And finally, he says this. 
he says, we do these things, you're a holy people and a royal priesthood that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. People ask this question all the time. What's my purpose? I get it from students all the time. What's my purpose? And they want to think about it in relationship, not just to their big picture life, but like their daily life. Like, what's the purpose of this work? What's the purpose of doing science? What's the purpose of business? What's the purpose of real estate? What's the purpose of this work that I'm doing? It's easier for a minister to say, oh, yeah, I got purpose. But you'd be surprised how many ministers struggle with their sense of purpose. What's the purpose of building homes for people? What's the purpose of caring about the dishes and the laundry and the yard? When 1666, there was a fire in London. And it wiped out most of London, including St. Paul's Cathedral. And if you've been to London, you've had to have at least seen St. Paul's Cathedral. And the architect that was, that was commissioned to oversee the rebuilding of St. Paul's Cathedral, his name was Christopher Wren. And one day Christopher Wren went down to where they were rebuilding St. Paul's Cathedral and he looked over the masses of people that were there, and there was dust in the air and people working hard, but there were three bricklayers that caught his attention. Their hands worn by years of grabbing that rough brick, laying it. So he went over there, and he went up to the first bricklayer, just intrigued, and he says, why are you doing this? And the first bricklayer tired and worn out, didn't even look up. He says, can't you see? I'm a bricklayer. I lay bricks. That's what I do. And Rin nodded. Then he went to the next bricklayer. And he says, what are you doing? This bricklayer, he looked up at the wall, and he says, I'm building a sturdy wall, and I'm hoping will last a long time. And Wren nodded his head. Then he turned to the third bricklayer, and he says, what are you doing? And the bricklayer turned his eyes toward Wren, and with a smile and a twinkle in his eye. He says, I'm building a grand cathedral. I'm building a grand cathedral that will show the glory of God right in the middle of the city. If you're wondering what your daily life and purpose is, God has revealed the light of Jesus Christ that gives purpose to what we do. If you're wondering 
what that purpose might be. It begins by seeing your life in light of God's purposes. In other words, all the work you do that is good work, from washing dishes to building cathedrals, it's all good work. And it's filled with purpose. Because Christ has illuminated to us His purposes in the world. And by doing those things, we now can see work we do, as big or small as it is, has purpose. And if you're wondering, Ben, a lot of the stuff I do has little meaning and purpose. Do you know how many people said that about Christ's death? There's nothing more meaningless than death. There's nothing more meaningless than death. And you have the privilege now of looking at Christ's death with incredible meaning and purpose but this was a huge stumbling block for most people in the early churches, even today. Christ died. One of the most meaningless acts that you could possibly do. Yet God fills it with purpose. Your identity is in Christ. And because you belong to Christ, everything you do has purpose.